Hello, and welcome to Dungeons & Drama Nerds. My name is Todd Brian Backus, and today I'm joined by Nick. Hello. And Percy. Hi. And today we're going to be talking about safety tools and TTRPGs and why we use them. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about intimacy choreography with Ella Mock and the specific tools and practices we already have in theater and how we could relate them to the TTRPG space. And so this week, we wanted to talk about safety tools in TTRPGs and how we might relate them to theater. In today's episode, we'll be talking about a couple different things, um, lines and veils that were designed by Ron Edwards, the X card designed by John Stavropoulos, and we'll be talking about these things, but if you want like more information or if you'd like an easy way to find these, um, you can look up the TTRPG Safety Toolkit Quick Reference Guide and the Guide to Using Safety Tools in Online Play that were created by Kiana Shaw and Lauren Bryant-Monk. So one of the most powerful safety tools, I think, and an easy one to incorporate into your home game is the ideas of lines and veils, which, like Todd said, were designed by Ron Edwards. So what are these ideas? Basically, they're drawing boundaries around the concepts that you want to include or the subjects that you want to include in your tabletop role-playing game. So the quick version is a line is basically a, a hard boundary uh, around a topic that you don't want to come up in the game. Uh, and if you name a topic as a line, I'm going to be silly for a second and say you might name peanut butter as a line for you. And in that case, you know there will essentially be none of that in the world of the game. Nobody will include it in their character backstory, and it won't be used as part of the plot. Something that is a veil is a topic that you're okay with existing in the story, but you would prefer that it not be centered, or you might want a check-in around the topic uh, ahead of time or immediately after. Something that you just want handled with uh, a little more discretion. One very common veil I've found in groups is gore. So a lot of tabletop role-playing games include violence, either innately or uh, it's very hard to avoid them. Most people, however, don't necessarily want to hear extremely graphic descriptions of what would actually happen when you stab someone with a sword, say. So that's a good example of a veil that is, you know, I'm okay with there being violence in this world, but I don't really want to hear this graphic description of it. I want to kind of gloss it over. I saw an article one time that uh, used the example of film noir, where you see things happen, for example, in silhouette or shadows, and things are kind of suggested, are not specifically seen in the eye of the camera. And that's a good way to think about veils for me, is the things that exist in the world, but we're not focusing on them directly. I also like the the way that veils are used to kind of like draw a scene to a close whether that's like a tasteful fade to black like we understand where it's going and we understand that we don't really need more detail and so we can be like yeah and then that kind of we fade out on that and we fade into our next scene and i think that's really useful um for that uh one of the ways that we used lines and veils in our session zero and we're going to give you a little bit of audio from this um was creating a world in which the players didn't have to encounter stuff like racism homophobia transphobia misogyny because like one 
we deal with that on the regular in real life and two we don't need that in our games just because it makes it a more like realistic version of the world doesn't mean that it makes it a more fun version of the world and we're playing games to explore other realities um and so uh, we're going to take a listen to part of our session zero here because we think John John really spoke to this really well. Can we put an X on uh, like gender-based and sexuality-based um, bullying? Yeah, my big X's are homophobia, transphobia, racism, and sexism in general. <laughs> like, so like I try not to be like misogynistic even with the villains you know and uh race and homophobia none of that like none of that just don't need it here even in the apocalypse we're better in the apocalypse let's say <laughs> it's our apocalypse <laughs> praise but yeah so so i would i would love there to be no uh sexuality gender-based violence or race-based violence or i'm actually really excited about that x in particular simply because i feel like it gives you like previously i feel like that was like a cheap way of like turning a character into like this oh villainous personality but now you're gonna have to kind of work for it a little bit more so i feel like it's a good one yeah it helps us build more interesting and complex villains as opposed to sort of for lack of a better term straw men where it's like oh yeah well of course they're a villain because they're racist and transphobic you know it's like well let's find more let's find more interesting villainy (laughs) as a group So it's really great if you do these things, establish your lines and veils at the beginning of gameplay and make sure that everybody is clear about the things that are on the table to talk about and play around with and the things that are off of the table. But if something does come up during gameplay that takes a player out of the game or makes them want to stop for any reason, they can use a tool called the X card to signal that they need to stop the game um, and reevaluate. Here is John John explaining the use of the X card in our game of Apocalypse World. So if we do hit something that wasn't mentioned in the list above and you find yourself because of the day or the hour or whatever reeling from sort of psychologically that would take you out of the game, we I use an X card in my games. And since we don't have a table um, to flash the X card, you are welcome to just say X, cross your hands like so, so I can see it. And when an X card goes up, I ask, uh, is this something you would like to just fast forward through? You know, just say it happened and cr- treat it like a veil. Or would you like to take a minute to step away from the table and we'll take a break? We can take a five there if you need a moment to recollect yourself because it's it's really no fun to force someone to sit through something that just triggered them or hurt them. You know, and so I want that X card to be a readily available tool for anyone to say, hey, I'm not comfortable this moment. I need to step away. And that also comes with a sort of, like, for instance, if I have said something and you X card me, I will assume, unless you state explicitly otherwise, that there's no judgment on me, you know, that it's not like I did this maliciously, you know, but I need, uh, that is the assumption I work with the X card. If you hit the X card, I'm going to assume it's because we stumbled across something. And that it also helps me not go like, oh, no, I'm a horrible person. I've done this thing, you know, and make it uncomfortable for everybody. Uh, so X card, I super, super encourage everyone to use. Um, I've had problems in the past with people not feeling like they could use the X card because they didn't want to stop everyone else's good time or X, Y, Z reasons. And I kind of hate that. You know, it makes me really unhappy to hear that. And so with y'all, especially because we don't know each other very well, like just slam that X card as soon as you start to feel uncomfortable. Don't wait. Um, I'd rather not, I'd rather find boundaries, not cross them. 
So one uh, obstacle that we encountered in our use of the X card is that this is designed as a tool to be used at a physical table where you have a literal piece of paper with an X on it that you can hand to the GM and that signals to them, okay, we need to take a break, uh, come back in five. I need to check in with this person, whatever, whatever the case may be, whatever you decide that card means specifically at your table uh, or whatever the person who's playing the card asks for. But in a non-physical space, um, we had to come up with some, some alternative options, whether it be physically making an X with your hands that is visible to the GM, uh, sending an X in the chat, anything like that. So that was one way that we had to adapt a little bit for our virtual game. But uh, the X card, as John John explains, there can be kind of a stigma around it because there is a sense of like, oh, I'm stopping everybody else from having fun because I'm uncomfortable. But I tend to tend to think, you know, I'm not having fun if everybody at the table isn't having fun. And there is nothing worse than watching a TTRPG stream where one player is visibly very uncomfortable and everybody else is continuing to go on and that person uh, is not being taken care of. Um, So all of these tools, I think, are about making sure that every single person at the table is having a good time and is able to fully invest and be in the world of the story and the game. Another topic that comes up uh, pretty frequently is character death. Um, For some people, this is a hard line. For some, it's something that they're open to, and that can even change from day to day. Uh, I really liked the way that uh, John John handled this. It's similar to the way I like to handle it in my own games. So we're going to give you a quick listen to that right now. One question I needed to pose to you all is a character death. How do you all feel about your character dying? Because for instance, like Apocalypse World, very gritty, like, but they say in the rules, life becomes untenable, uh, which is not necessarily death. And so, uh, again, this is something you're free to message me privately about. But if you are not comfortable with your character dying, let me know, because that also will affect how, if we run into combat, how I affect targeting, who gets targeted a little bit more. Or, you know, in D&D 5e terms, when someone goes unconscious, do I keep attacking them until they die versus just switch to someone else? It, it helps me tactically prepare to make sure that, you know, we can have dramatic, intense, and nervous situations without necessarily death. Um, but yeah, so if anyone doesn't is explicitly like, I do not want my character to die for any reason, just let me know, and I'm happy to accommodate that. I really like this question. Um, I feel like taking away the, the player's chance of death does also take away a little bit of the agency that the player has in that world. Um, however, I also understand like that we have spent however much time creating and bonding with this character, and we don't necessarily want all that work um, to go away. So I think like if the life becomes untenable situation comes up, I think it'd be really cool if you and say that person who reached that point would uh, talk with each other and see if you can work something out if they don't want their character to die, or maybe they feel that yes, their character's time has expired on this apocalyptic land and you can figure something out that way too. Yeah, I I want the agency to rest with y'all the players on that. So as you heard, uh, John John mostly was uh, encouraging the players to contact him about their own preferences for character death, whether they're open to that or not. And personally, I really like that approach in part because it does keep uh, 
it allows you to take care of everybody while keeping the stakes high. Because if, you know, there's nothing wrong with having that conversation altogether and saying, oh, maybe none of us want to have the risk of character death here. But um, if you have that conversation individually, A, it gives everybody the chance to respond kind of for themselves without feeling pressure from the group to go one way or the other. And also it creates a little bit of uncertainty where, you know, if we know that some people may have said, hey, yes, it's fine if my character dies, then we know that, you know, if their character looks like they're in a situation where they're where they're about to die, or as Apocalypse World says, where their life is going to become untenable, then maybe we our characters need to intervene in that because they're not necessarily protected by the kind of GM plot armor. I think this also addresses um, something that applies to these safety tools more broadly, which is the question of, um, let's say you're in a group like our group that doesn't know each other particularly well. Um, and we were able to kind of find an openness and a vulnerability really, really quickly, but that's not true of every group. And it can be really hard when you're in a group of people that you don't know super well to be open and honest about like, here are my traumas that I don't want to be explored in the game or disclosing that like, a member of my family died recently and I'm not okay with my character dying. Like these can be personal things that you might not want to share with people that you don't know particularly well, or just you might not want to share them at all. So I think it's also useful to develop strategies like reaching out to the GM privately or having some kind of anonymous form to submit these different lines, veils, preferences in terms of character death. Um, so that's always a good thing to think through is people's personal levels of vulnerability, because ultimately these safety tools don't work if people don't feel comfortable using them to their fullest potential. I have really become a fan of anonymous lines and veils. That's how I've been doing it in my kind of home games. That can be as simple as a Google a Google Doc that has just a space that everybody can access and write down their own lines and veils without self-identifying. Or if you, if you really want to be uh, kind of serious about anonymity, you could also make a Google form. Mm-hmm. Since I think you you know if you're determined, you can track down who individually listed things when they edited a Google Doc, but you can also anonymize a Google form and just be like, list your lines here, list your veils here. And then you have a single document that has everybody's lines and veils with nobody uh, singled out by name. Yeah, I've done that for my home D&D game and it has been excellent because then also... Because I also folded the question about character death into that so I can at a glance reference, you know, who's who's okay with what Um, you can export it into a spreadsheet if you want. And then you have everybody's topics in a spreadsheet, which I'm not sure what you would use that for, but you could Um, (laughs) you could have them. But it's useful to to be able to like cross reference that real quickly because you know I might not remember that three years ago you listed this thing that hasn't come up in the game, but now we're veering closer to because of how like the narrative is shifting or whatever. Um, and so being able to have those things at a glance super useful. Um, and you know the whole reason behind these things is to make sure that people can have like safe fun that they can make bold choices in as opposed to like one worrying about am i going to make this an uncomfortable situation for one of my friends and pull all of us out of the game or two knowing that like actually we can go into this area because people were willing to and excited to explore it even if that's something that like normally i would feel worried about or like i don't know if people want to go here 
I think that, like that's what these tools allow us to do is allow us to go to places that might be outside of the pale um, because we know that it's a safe space that everybody's willing to go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really exciting to see safety tools get built into more and more games, or at least games are being crafted with an eye towards consent and safety at the table ranging from like short kind of addressing like you should have a conversation about this at the beginning of your handbook to games like dragon hearts that build safety tool mechanisms uh into into the gameplay themselves and dragon hearts specifically uses taylor stokes's support flower which is another safety tool that we did not use in our game but is a is a good one it's super super pretty and i really like it and i haven't figured out a good way to like use it online yet um, because you're sort of supposed to be able to physically tap parts of it to respond. I don't to actually things. know it. Can you two describe it a little bit for me? Because I, this is the first I'm hearing of it. Ahead, sure. Nick. So it's basically a uh, it's a series of like overlapping circles that are you know that are laid out. So there's one in the center, and then sort of four around it, and then. Uh, I don't know how many, a bunch more around the the outer edge uh, overlaps. They look a little bit like, I don't know what. Petals? Petals, yes. Like a flower. Like a what? Oh, like a a chrysanthemum? No. I don't know. I was about to say like a chrysanthemum. Oh, like a a peony. Peonies are circle petals. Yeah. Like a peony. There we go. Yeah, I was going to say. Dungeons and Drama Nerds and also botany. (laughs) But the, so the outer rim is green and is just for, you know, feelings like, I love this, more please, blah, blah, blah. The inner ring, the, the sort of middle ring is yellow and includes little descriptions like, I'm okay with this, but be careful, or, uh, you know, let's go cautiously, things like that. And then the very center of the circle is uh, red, and it says, there's text on it, I don't remember exactly what it says, but it essentially says, like, let's please not do this. Um, and the way you're supposed to use it is each player has one in front of them on the table, and you can check in with people both by, you know, obviously kind of like the X card, people can tap where they're feeling but you can also use it to check in with people in theory by you can like tap back and forth between red and yellow to say like are we okay like do we want to go a little like further in this direction or tap back and forth between yellow and green to be like do you want me to back off of this thing um i also i just like visually interesting safety tools well what's cool about what's cool about the support flower is that like it's very similar to a really common kink practice which is red yellow and green cards um and that's that is how i was introduced to this concept and it's a thing that ella talked a lot about in their in their interview but i think it's nice that all of these things are using similar mechanics and there's something familiar i think to a lot of people like People may not come at it from a kink direction or may not be familiar with these kinds of tools uh, from the kink community, but they might have used um, like there are lots of like games and and sports and things that have warning cards, red cards, yellow cards. Um, like I think that's a common language that we're all familiar with. Yeah, I can't think of a good way to use that. Well, online. and it allows you to to check in without breaking immersion. Mm-hmm. which I think is cool. Like you don't necessarily have to stop in the middle of a thing and check in though you can. And that's a useful thing to do to say like, Hey, out of characters, the party cool with us going in this direction. 
um, but it also allows you to continue those without having a start stop. I also do like that gives you that middle, you know, the yellow level, which is a little more, um, it's a little more nuanced than the X card, which can't, I think a reason that people are sometimes leery of it is that it feels like a hard stop, whether or not it's intended to be that within your particular group. I mean, I will say, I think it's useful to also have a hard stop, like the red circle or, or an X card, because like what I was kind of thinking about, but not explicitly saying there's a video of Adam Koble leading, um, leading a game where he, as the, as the MC sexually assaults a player character as an NPC. Um, and it is incredibly uncomfortable and that would have been a great opportunity for the X card. As soon as that player started feeling uncomfortable to be able to say, we have to stop right now. Um, the, the, the game, the game cannot continue. So I think it's useful also to have a hard, a hard out because sometimes like, if something happens in a game, even if it's not a particularly intense or bad or wrong thing, you just like something hits you the wrong way and you're immediately taken out of the game. That's a great opportunity where you might not have the leeway to be like, this is going in a direction I don't like. You might just have to be like, I mm, not right now. We have to stop. Mm hmm. So I think this brings up the question that some people ask in response to learning about these safety tools, which is, are these tools not a form of censorship or self-censorship or something like that? Uh, to which, personally, I would say no. Uh, and the reason I don't view them as such, and I, I don't think anyone really should, is because all of these safety tools work through mutual consent. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of them are modeled on or drawn from the kink community. You know, that's why I think the lines and veils uh, is so important as something that you do, whether anonymously or not, all together as a group at the beginning of your game, because then you've all agreed to not only play a game together, but to play the same game where you have the same boundaries and everybody's aware of what that is from the beginning. Now, that's not to say that if you want to play a game that deals with some of these harder topics, if you want to play a game that does include homophobia or peanut butter, um, because, for example, you hate peanut butter and you would love to kick the shit out of some peanut butter in a way that that you can't in reality that's fine. It's just a matter of finding a group that is you know, where everybody is willing to engage in that particular fantasy with you. Uh, now, I can't raise the more complicated question of if you and another player have really, truly opposing desires for this game, what do you do about that? But that's going to be a fraught question that you have to figure out with every individual group and, and player. I mean, I think it's the same thing as like, because we had discussions too as a part of this conversation in our session zero that were like, what kind of game do you want to play? I'm not sure what we would have done for the podcast if it had turned out that half of the group was like, I want a super gritty, grim, dark apocalypse power fantasy where we murder all the raiders. And the other half were like, um, I want a French farce um, where we're like <laughs> running down hallways and poking in and out of doors and like looking for a Bichon Frise that's gotten lost. Like, I don't know what we would have done if there had been an incompatibility there, but I think it's this, it's a similar, like if you and another player have really, really different and opposing safety needs, maybe you just aren't compatible in a gaming group together. 
So I finished reading uh, James D'Amato's book um, on how to play the best RPG ever, our role-playing game ever, um, which actually has a lot of useful stuff around here. And in addition to talking about lines and veils, he also talks about like genre and style. And the whole point to him is about setting up expectations so that nobody gets let down. And so that can be stuff like, I don't want to deal with homophobia or transphobia in my games. And also stuff like, I would love for like the combat to be zany. Like, mm-hmm. what if this is an absurdist Western where like you shoot a guy in the the standoff and we don't see blood spurting, but we just hear like, you know, a gun, like a bullet hitting a milk can and we see him like spin around five times and then fall over. And that like different players are obviously going to bring different expectations to the game, but doing this kind of work in a session zero, whether it's for safety or for style, allows us to come to a consensus on what is the type of game that we want to play so that people aren't let down when we don't do our, you know, generations long epics about destiny and instead like become murder hobos who like raid a dwarven mine um well and i also think it levels the playing field in terms of um people who are marginalized in some way or people who have trauma are have equal access to to this game experience that can be really healing and really exciting and really fun um you know it it puts everybody in agreement. And I think the even more important thing that these do is they open up lines of communication between you and the rest of the group in like, there's a brave space where everybody can be honest about what they're feeling and where they're at without feeling like they're taking something away from everybody else. Like, I think it it removes the stigma of talking about your feelings in a way that is really productive so that later in gameplay, everybody feels open to raising a problem, even if it's not related to safety in the way that we've been talking about, even if it's just like this player's behavior is annoying to me. We've already had a bunch of conversations along the lines of like, here's what I want and here's what I need as a player. So I personally would feel more comfortable saying you're compromising my gameplay experience. Like what you're doing is taking me out of the game because we've had so many, there are so many building blocks to being able to have that conversation without it being weird or out of nowhere. We we've talked about how they're not like censorship or whatever, but what are the what are the positive and we've touched on this a little, but what are the positive values of safety tools and what do we think we can take from them or learn from them for theater purposes? Well, they make sure that games are fun, which is the point of games. <laughs> and as Percy was saying, I just wanna like underline that. Creating a brave space for people to explore ideas as opposed to like a a tenuous space or a space of fear like it's not about like we're worried and we want to avoid these things it's like we know we don't want to explore these things so what are the things that we want to explore and how can we explore those to the fullest and i think that's what's really exciting it's like how can i play this game in a way that is exciting to me and also doesn't hurt anybody is great (laughs) Yeah, well, in speaking from from experience in Irremediably Home, Vance Holiday embodies a lot of things that I'm deeply insecure about um, and that I like grapple with frequently. But because we took so much care to make a space that is brave and keep each other 
um, safe and like all expressed care for each other's well-being. I felt okay exploring those things and taking a lot of risks within my character because I knew that I had an out if I needed it uh, and that I would be supported. And that's really, really important. And it really enriched the gameplay experience for me. Yeah, in a very different way. I think that Chris Dierkson also talked about this with uh, Chadrick Bosley back in when we discussed Of Mice and Monsters, uh, lo these many months ago. But that's for him as well. That character acted as a kind of way to explore parts of himself or worries that he has that, uh, you know, he's not that 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 he's able to explore in a protected space like a game. I'm reminded, too, of how important uh, communication is constantly. One thing I learned from um, Intimacy Direction that I thought was very valuable was the need for kind of constant check-ins and communication, including things like in a rehearsal room or a devising process, the practice of reestablishing boundaries every day or every time you come to the work, which can be as simple as saying, you know, during a check-in at the beginning of the day, hey, uh, you know, we're going to be doing this devising and I'm comfortable with you touching me anywhere or, you know, and please don't touch my face or neck, you know, kind of giving those, those are very physical examples, but you could also certainly do those check-ins for emotional uh, or kind of subject matter examples too i think yeah and i think thinking about how these tools can apply to theater um i recently finished a devising process um in my grad program where you know i just literally used uh lines and veils and um and the x card within our devising process like just took them straight no changes no adaptations for theater and they worked really really well as a mechanism for, you know, everybody, like we said, everybody having an opportunity to raise things that are um, hard boundaries or soft boundaries for them and having a way to stop rehearsal and say, I need five minutes or can somebody check in with me or whatever. But I think the principles of them also apply really well to theater if you don't want to explicitly just take the existing structures. Um, I think it's really important at the beginning of your rehearsal process. And then like Nick said, ongoing throughout to have conversations about what subject matter is hard for me and what subject matter is totally okay and on the table and game to explore. Because I think even, even in non-devised processes where you have an existing script and you know what the subject matter is, it's still really valuable for somebody to say upfront, like, let's say it's a script that deals with sexual assault and an actor has some kind of trauma surrounding sexual assault, it's really, really good for everybody in the room to understand that this is a topic that is difficult and that there needs to be care associated with it. So I think even when you don't necessarily have a lot of control over what the content is and what is and isn't brought into the room, it can still be really good to get a sense of each other's needs when it comes to certain topics. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I wanted to... Thank you for saying that. And I wanted to make sure that like um, even outside of devising, like this is the sort of work that we should be doing all the time because all sorts of stories that we love to tell in theater deal with very hard things um, and finding ways to keep our audiences and our actors and designers and just like participants um, in a safe and easy space to be able to do that work is hard 
but stuff that we need to do. Yeah. Ultimately we do theater because we love doing theater. Um, and it's, it would really suck if, uh, you had to battle through really negative and harmful experiences in order to do theater. So we should make it a fun, a fun and happy time for everybody involved. Um, in a space that is ripe for risk-taking. Content warnings, I think, are another great example of a safety tool, although they're actually a little bit of a, I guess, more of a passive one, if that's the right word. You know, they're, they're not something that uh, an audience member or a player can actually activate, but I think that's one reason a lot of theaters have started to put content warnings on their work um, and tabletop role playing games have started to put them on like published adventures is simply because it is useful to people um, not necessarily to know every detail of a plot or something, but to know that topic is going to come up uh, gives people the choice to either avoid a show if it's something they really don't want to deal with or just to kind of prepare themselves mentally so that they're not completely blindsided by something that might be triggering or deeply upsetting um, when it does arise. And I think so often we think of content advisories as like making people opt in or out of a thing and is why theaters are so hesitant to do that. But Mm -hmm. like more often than not, I feel the way they're actually used is like, oh, this deals with this thing. I can know that and go into it and not be absolutely thrown and i think that like that is so much more useful and also the way in which people use it more often um i feel like a lot of as someone who has lobbied for content advisories at theaters for a long time and often gets rebutted i feel like so often it's like oh well then people won't come see our show and it's like no people won't come to see your show and then never come back again because you did something awful to them without telling them first. And that's why I struggle so much with people who object to content advisories and theaters because they're quote unquote spoilers. And it's like, if I can suspend my disbelief um, to, I can't think of any example of any show that I've ever seen. <laughs> um, I mean, literally everyone still produces Shakespeare plays and everybody knows what fucking happens in them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like if I, if I can, if I can suspend my, my disbelief that, um, that the rest of the world cannot tell Viola and Sebastian apart, even though they are clearly two different people, you know, or you, any, take any other outlandish musical theater example that you can think of. Like if I can suspend my disbelief to accept the theatrical in any sense, I can like, go into a show knowing that there is violence and gunshots in it and not have my experience ruined. And like, I can think of theaters like Willie Mammoth had a like spoiler alert content advisory for Brandon Jacobs Jenkins Gloria. And I won't spoil it here, but there like to fully give you a content wording for that play would spoil the end of the first act. However. Yeah, that's true. That is, there's the occasional example where there it does involve spoilers but even so but if you have trauma surrounding that like i would rather know and like i think it it, i i'm not sure who i'm quoting here it might be taylor mac hard to say but someone was talking about trigger warnings and like sarah kane's work and Mm -hmm. it is like necessarily cruel to let someone go see a sarah kane play and not know what they're signing up for like as people who know what that is that is a cruelty 
to a person. Her plays are very intense and very visceral, and I love them. And also, if you were expecting to see Sunday in the Park with George and you got a Sarah Kane play, you would never want to go to the theater again. Well, and like ultimately, this is a hot take. Um, so sorry. Um, if you're <laughs> if you're relying on shock value and surprise and like shocking your audience and like whatever you're not a very good theater maker and you should probably like figure out how to make effective theater using literally any other means than just (laughs) surprise. Um, anyway. (laughs) And then we segue to the end question mark. (laughs) I think that's a great note for us to wrap up on. (laughs) Mic drop. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DN Drama Nerds. Check out cast bios on our website, dungeonsanddramanerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.